Welcome to the MS Diet for Life podcast. I'm Kim, a health coach, natural nutrition consultant, and teacher. I've also had MS for nine years. My mission is to spread the word that MS can be successfully managed holistically. We don't just have to resign ourselves to a decline in quality of life and steady worsening of our symptoms. There is so much we can do to manage this illness and stay well. Welcome everybody to the MS Diet for Life podcast. Today we have the lovely Samantha Josephs with us. Samantha is a nutritional therapist who has a holistic and preventative approach to helping people manage various conditions. Her husband was diagnosed with MS a number of years ago, which was when she became aware that diet and lifestyle changes can make a big difference to someone living with MS. In recent years, she has been very involved in helping to deliver the OMS program and has also been involved in a number of retreats. So welcome, Sam. It's really great to have you on the podcast today. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's really great to have you. Sam, could you start by telling us a little bit about your background in nutrition, why you decided to study nutrition, uh, the approach you've taken, and then possibly how you got into the OMS way of thinking? I first became interested, I think, in nutrition uh, about the time I was pregnant with my first child, when actually the country was in the grips of another major health crisis, which was mad cow disease. Um, and suddenly the public were very aware of, um, you know, potential danger of certain foods and, and how diet could actually have a very detrimental impact. Quite a scary time to be pregnant. Um, I was a pescatarian myself at the time, so I wasn't actually eating any of the meat, but I'm still around that kind of hysteria. I'd also um, done a bit of traveling and coming back to the UK sort of at the mid of a sort of an organic food revolution as well um, just kind of increased my awareness um, I think of just um, food manufacturing processes and standards and the sort of the stark contrast between sort of foods that were growing very organically in Indian markets and then coming back to the UK and seeing these sort of identical beautiful carrots all laid out you know one by one at the English greengrocers and I felt I felt a real kind of doctoring of the food industry somehow. Um, and I think being pregnant on top of that really sort of compounded my interest around food um, as, as being a potential um, power for good or something that could potentially contain um, harmful substances as well. Um, so that kind of sparked my initial interest. And by the time um, I was pregnant with my second child, I was already um, well into my course uh, for doing nutritional therapy um, and qualified 2008. So yes, quite a few years ago now. Yeah. Um, and before, before I actually started the nutritional therapy course, my husband was diagnosed with MS. Um, and so sort of having that diagnosis and then going on this kind of huge learning curve um, really kind of set a sort of standard of how we eat and walking the talk, I suppose, at home made it, made it seem much more real. 
my husband had been living with MS for a number of years before um, George Jelinek had published the OMS book. So in the beginning, when you're first told by the neurologist that you have MS and you should just go away and wait for another attack before you get a confirmed diagnosis. And it seemed like a very unsatisfactory way to live. And we said, well, you know, they weren't really offering medications necessarily. Um, and we said, is there anything else that we can do ourselves? Um, and they said, no, just, you know, just carry on eating healthily and, and whatever. So we went, we went off and I did my own research and actually came across a charity called um, MSRC, the MS Resource Centre, who have rebranded as MS Direct now. Um, and it was, it was, I think it was kind of led by Judy Graham at the time, who was oh. very much into um, uh, natural and, well, we say alternative, but we don't mean it, the more sort of complementary approach um, to managing chronic disease. Um, and, uh, and the MSRC were sort of pushing forward the best bet diet, um, mm -hmm. Ashton Embry's diet, um, which was, you know, based around the work of Swank. So very low fat, but also taking out dairy, cutting out um, all other red meats and things. Um, and so immediately we put my husband on the best bet diet, which he followed for quite a few years. Um, they weren't gluten-free at that time. So he took dairy out and immediately noticed um, a huge improvement in symptoms. It's amazing. And lost the cheese feeling that he used to get. He said he used to get a cheese feeling, <laughs> which cheese was a tingling, feeling. prickling sensation across oh. his head every time he ate cheese. How amazing. Um, and he realized it was like a, an intolerance um, that was going on. Um, and even now he'll say if he eat something um like if we we're in a restaurant or something he might have a mouth or something and say, oh my god i think there might have been dairy in that i can almost feel it prickling in my fingers um so he took dairy out immediately um lost a lot of weight quite quickly mm -hmm. as well which was good because he needed to <laughs> <laughs> um wasn't he wasn't hugely overweight but um you know looked all the better for it yeah um and for many years we just followed that practice of pretty much um being conscious of food labels being conscious of certain food types and kind of understanding um how much saturated fat was probably present in the meals and the foods that we were eating um cooked a lot of food from you know most of the food i was cooking was i was cooking meals from scratch um, you know, avoiding fried foods, things like that. Also did um, intolerance testing on him. So eggs came back as one of his allergens. He took the eggs out of the diet. Um, and we kind of, we followed that approach for quite a while. Um, when the OMS, um, the Overcoming Multiple Sclerosis book kind of hit the press, um, it was something I really devoured and was really um, grateful to Dr. Jelinek for putting all that research together in one place. Um, and it was something that I discussed a lot with clients, um, but my husband just wouldn't let go of chicken or chocolate. Those were his two battles. <laughs> just couldn't um, <laughs> Really difficult, especially yeah. chocolate, yes. Yeah, um, he was just like, you know, I, there's no way I could ever give up dark chocolate that was his one treat and it is difficult um, 
you know, even on the best bet diet to, to sort of find desserts that aren't essentially, you know, a bowl of fruit and a bit of sorbet maybe. Um, you know, it is pretty difficult. Don't forget, this is, you know, a good 10 years ago now mm-hmm. or more. Um, this is long before the vegan revolution. Absolutely, um, yeah. And the discovery of chia seeds and things like that. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, so, so he, he was very reluctant to kind of let go of, um, to let go of chicken as well, white chicken breast. Um, although he was doing all the, the right things in terms of vitamin D and oils um, and obviously having a whole food diet. So we felt like he was very close to an OMS program. And then he did his first um, OMS retreat a couple of years ago. And at that moment, he was like, right, that's it. Um, I'm fully on the program now. Um, and he hasn't gone back to chocolate or chicken. And I think, I think he's pretty comfortable with that. I think it took a while, but he's pretty comfortable with that now. That's amazing. It, it does often take a while and you have to do it in stages, don't you? You, you, you some get people of, like doing the stages and yes. some people have that all or nothing mindset. Um, and I've seen clients who just go from one extreme to another overnight. And I've seen clients who, you know, over the process of a 12 months or so, sort of gradually let things go. Got to be careful when we think about these kind of diet programs, when we're taking things out, how important it is to put things in so people don't feel like they are, being restricted or losing certain things. So sometimes it takes a bit longer to really explore dis- and, and sort of delight in the world of vegetables or pulses or something to really appreciate those foods so that you can then let go of perhaps adding the chicken to the dish. You're completely right. We need to be as focused on what we're adding in as what we're taking out. Because yeah. I think often we just focus on those sort of bad foods quote unquote bad foods yep um and we don't actually focus on the foods that are really going to help our bodies heal would you say that it was a difficult transition for him or did he find it quite i would yes i know i would say that first of all the diagnosis is quite scary and quite full-on and when you're told by the neurologist that they haven't really got any advice for you then in that moment, the, um, the motivation to take things into your own hands, I think um, was one of the things that made it a bit easier than it might have been otherwise. Um, and I think the kind of almost instant benefit he felt once he gave up dairy again was a really great motivator. Yeah. So in some ways he was lucky to have had such a, a good feeling around making that first step and cutting out the dairy. In terms of kind of how difficult it was, I would say it has been difficult um, in as much as um, he's, you know, he's, he's going to work every day. Sometimes work involves lunchtime meetings where you may not have any control over the foods that are offered. Um, and he ends up, you know, skipping lunch and having to find it elsewhere later on or, um, you know, being invited out and going places is always you know, come with some sort of caveat for us as well. So that's sometimes been difficult. Um, And sometimes, you know, things like holidays, again, especially, you know, go on holidays, especially in the beginning 
of a transition stage where you think, oh, last time I was on holiday, I was eating ice cream on the beach or, you know, and, and it's those kind of triggers. It might have been 12 months that you've given up dairy, but we're, you know, walking back into a habitual place and going, oh yeah, damn, this is the beach where we eat the ice, you know. So things like that can sometimes remind you of things that you seem to have given up. For me as well, the most difficult part has been um, when I go out to someone's house, uh, when we go out for meals, as you say, when you go to a beach where you usually have your favorite ice cream, now you can't have it anymore. And I think that that is probably the most difficult part of changing your, your diet and your lifestyle. Um, and because I, I think most people don't really understand what it's all about. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think when you're at home and you're in control, um, it's way easier than when you're trying to be out and trying to be flexible and trying to fit in. Um, you know, like for Danny going away on a work trip could be really tricky. Yeah. Um, and being around sort of like hotel breakfast, you know, could be really tricky. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But it's, I mean, it's been a learning curve and, um, you know, we often travel with, um, with a long life um, carton of oatmeal and you know pack of oat cakes and some rice cakes and you know all that kind of thing absolutely <laughs> um, exactly it's all about being prepared and forward thinking isn't it and you just have to be super organized yeah. don't you yeah. yeah yeah and that that's the kind of stuff that takes a while so you can make your own transitions at home a lot quicker um but it's i suppose not beating yourself up when you come across these stumbling blocks and you feel like you know, this was a bad week because I was there and I wasn't prepared. You just have to kind of accept that next time you're in that situation, you will be prepared. And then that's another time when, um, when you actually do achieve um, sticking to the rules, as it were. Definitely. It's all a learning process, isn't it? Yeah, we, yeah. we get it right sometimes, we get it wrong other times, and then we learn. My next question then kind of leads on from that. What does your husband, what do you and your husband eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? What are your staples that uh, you eat most often? Um, so breakfast, I think my husband's recently got into porridge. Um, and so he'll have porridge um, either with an almond milk um, or an oat milk or something. And then he'll put blueberries or other berries, usually frozen because we don't always have fresh berries and actually i find the frozen ones they've you've got more variety you get red currants and black currants and yeah. raspberries and blackberries all through the year so it's quite nice you just put them in with the oats as you're warming it um and then he'll always put a few nuts or something on top um at the weekends we'll do like an egg white scramble with onions tomatoes spinach coriander and some gluten-free toast um, wonderful sounds delicious so he's yeah he quite likes his um corn cakes um we sometimes have like a pot of herring or some anchovies in the fridge or some smoked salmon um unfortunately he's not keen on avocado which is such a shame I yeah just sort of try and sneak it in where i can but yeah <laughs> that's something i eat quite a lot for breakfast oh, I yeah. um yeah miso miso spread on gluten-free toast with avocado which was something that i picked up from the one of the oms retreats 
they were serving it. Um, and I've never seen it consumed like that before as a spread. Yeah. Um, and now I'm addicted. Yes, yeah, it's great. Well, sounds wonderful. Yum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit like Marmite, that sort of like uh, salty. Okay. Yeah. Salty, but almost a bit sweet, I guess. Um, and it's fermented. Yes. Um, so it's got some good benefits. Oh, it sounds very healthy. Yeah. Lovely. Um, so those are kind of the typical breakfasts, I guess. Um, lunches, he will sometimes take leftovers um, from dinner the night before to work depending on what he's doing and where he's going. But he works in the centre of London, so he's quite lucky um, with things like food stalls and things around. There's sometimes um, places that have, you know, like a salad bar. So sort of choosing lots of different salads, lots of different toppings. Then he gets to choose his own dressing, so he can just go for the straight olive oil. Mm -hmm. um, soups as well, that kind of thing. Um, and occasionally he'll say to me, you know, someone went out at lunch break and they brought back sushi so that's also another advantage of working in the center of london <laughs> exactly sushi's um, always a winner isn't choices. it yeah 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 weekends here what do we do for lunches it's usually a smorgasbord of anything that's in the fridge olives and um it could be things like um smoked salmon again or um um, soups. I make quite a lot of soups. I've got a nice tomato and lentil soup that's everybody's firm family favourite. Um, dinners and things, we sort of, um, I try and cook fish um, two or three times a week. I use prawns and octopus and squid. As but well. yeah, so we have, we do have quite a lot of fish. We have um, haddock, smoked haddock is an easy one, just poaching that in some rice milk with some bay leaf and black pepper. We have a lot of brown rice. I'm particularly fond of the short grain brown rice. I quite like the sort of nutty, knobbly texture. Mm. We have a lot of buckwheat as well, make um, kasha um, out of buckwheat, um, which the first time I did it, I was really nervous that um, you know, my husband and my daughter were just going to recoil in horror, but they both went, that was really nice. Oh. I really enjoyed that. Oh, can you, tell me relief. Yeah. Yeah. can you tell me more about Kesha? Because I've so these are Well, these are buckwheat groats, and I found this in an old 70s recipe book. Um, it was called Low-Fat Vegetarian Cooking by Susan Kreitzman, um, which I thought was a great recipe book. Um, there's a lot of OMS-friendly recipes in it. Um, so this is, so you take the um, buckwheat groats and you mix them into egg white and then you dry heat that until the egg white has kind of dried off the groats mm. and then you add stock. So sort of twice the amount of stock to the amount of groats, a bit like rice. Mm -hmm. And then you just cover it for 20 minutes, let it simmer, take the lid off and then just kind of let it steam dry, I guess. Okay. And they sort of swell up kind of like almost like giant couscous. Okay. Um, but buckwheat, even though it says wheat in its name, it's actually a gluten-free grain. Yeah. Um, and it's a nice alternative to to brown rice. And, and we are actually gluten-free in the house as well. Yeah. So it's mm. nice to have different grains to use. Um, and that worked really well. It was really tasty. Oh, I think I'll try that. That's, that does sound like quite a nice different dish because I'm a rice girl. I eat yeah. so much rice, but I'm a little bit sick of yeah. it at the moment. So it'd be nice to try yeah. something a bit different. 
your yeah. meals sound fantastic. They sound really varied and delicious. Um, and it yeah, part good. of that comes because I think I just get bored cooking the same thing. So, um, and I'm not very good at meal planning either. So I will look in the fridge, see what I've got, and then probably use Google to have a quick look at what, what I can make with the ingredients I've got. So I do tend to experiment quite a lot and produce a few different things. I use the OMS cookbook quite a lot. I find that's really um, tried and tested recipes and the How Not to Die cookbook. I really like that as well. That's got a lot of good Brilliant. vegan recipes in it. Yeah. And then Sam, I wanted to also ask you a little bit about food allergy tests. Now I know you mentioned that you've had one done with your, um, your husband has had one done. How important do you feel it is to have a food allergy test done? Um, and are there any that you recommend? When we're talking about food allergies, we're actually talking, I think in this sense about food intolerances. So the allergies are the sort of clinical reaction that could end up in something like anaphylaxis. So, you know, eating a peanut um, or some seafood that very quickly would cause an allergic reaction in the mouth, in the mm. throat, mm. Um, could cause like an urticaria hive, something like that. So that's, that's a food allergy. And that okay. kind of testing, I'm pretty sure you would be aware of. Um, or I'm pretty sure you'd be aware if you had a food allergy because of this immediate and uh, you know potentially alarming response. Um, and working out those food allergies is something that you would do um, through the medics and through a doctor with an IgE skin prick test where they yeah. put a load of different samples on your arm or on your back and, and gauge your histamine response to it. So those are the true food allergies. Um, but we do know that there are um, clinical manifestations of something called a food intolerance or sensitivity. And mm -hmm. that comes about through uh, a different immunoglobulin in the body called IgG. So it's much less severe and sudden because these food intolerances could potentially take up to 72 hours to, um, to manifest. So um, they're a little bit harder to identify. Um, to sort of say, well, I've eaten something that I think is having an effect on me. Mm -hmm. um, and those intolerance tested, uh, tests are, are usually done through um, diagnostic laboratories, private labs at the moment, um, that use um, either blood or a dried blood um, test. So you sort of do a skin prick test and, and squeeze blood onto a, a blotting paper and send it back to the labs. Um, and then they can test them up against about, in some labs, up to about 250 different foods and things. Um, and you have to be a little bit more um, discerning in reading and understanding those intolerances because sometimes um, having lots of things flag up could just be indicative of something called gut hyperpermeability, so having a leaky gut. Uh, which are just actually allowing excess proteins to sort of cross from the gut into the bloodstream across the leaky gut barrier. And that could be sending these blood test results oh, um, okay. into an elevated level. So the science is kind of there, but 
not quite 100%. So we always have to exercise a little bit of caution around food intolerance testing mm. and reading those tests and what they mean and, and also looking at the actual symptoms that someone may have mm -hmm. um, against what we see in the test. Um, and the only really true way to identify um, a food intolerance is really through an elimination diet. Mm. So a food intolerance test can be really useful to signify which foods are probably the suspect foods. Okay. And then we would do a clear elimination for three months on those foods mm. and then slowly reintroduce one at a time, carefully monitoring with a food diary, any signs or symptoms for up to 72 hours after that introduction. Um, and that really, I think the kind of medical profession are in agreement that the elimination diet is probably the most definitive way to look for these food intolerances. Um, but as nutritionists, um, we certainly, there is building evidence and these tests are improving all the time that um, some of these blood tests for IgG can really be a good start point and indicative so years ago, when Danny was diagnosed, we did something called the York test, um, which mm. was pretty much one of the only tests on the market. Um, I haven't used it more recently. Um, the one that I use now is from um, Regenerous Labs, um, and it's a, an American company called KBMO. And they are looking at IgG, but they're also looking um, at a different complement antigen, so a different um, element that also reinforces and reaffirms the picture of what the IgG is picking up. So they've kind of, their technology is already moving on one step and they okay. test up to about 130 different foods. Um, they're not cheap, these tests, it's about 300 pounds. Mm. Um, but I do think that um, if, you, if you seem to have symptoms and you suspect there's an underlying food intolerance, but you can't quite identify it, then I think that it's a really useful tool to use. With people who are newly diagnosed, my clients who are newly diagnosed, um, I would you know, take them down a sort of a, an OMS protocol kind of diet and then monitor how they were going. And then if I felt that there was something left undressed, it would be one of the first things that I would recommend doing. Okay. Well, that's, that's really good to know that um, you, you would recommend these tests as a starting point for identifying yeah. food intolerances. Um, but then, as you say, you've, you've, you've got to, you can't take it too seriously at first. You've got to actually yeah. make sure with an elimination diet, which ones are the real culprits um, and yeah. which ones the body is actually fine with. If you did a food intolerance test on someone and you had, you know, quite a high number, like more than 10 um, of, you know, flagging up as quite um, reactive, then you would be thinking about gut permeability. And with autoimmunity, gut permeability is often a feature. Mm. Um, and so you would want to go down the line of kind of fixing a leaky gut. And then these tests are very useful because they're so easy to do, you can do them at home for retesting six months or so later mm, and, mm. Um, and hopefully seeing a change in that overall profile. So there's definitely a place for them, but we have to be a little bit careful how we read them. Um, Absolutely, yeah.
Well, that's really interesting that you say that if quite a few foods are flagged up, that that's indicative of a leaky gut. So, and I know a lot of people really want to know if they do have a bit of a leaky gut, because as you say, that, that can lead to autoimmune behavior. Um, and so, and that in itself is actually a really good reason to have a test done because if it does flag up that your gut is leaky, yeah, you're right. You're going to want to up your probiotics and start eating far more fermented foods um, and really work on gut healing. In your opinion, what are some of the most anti-inflammatory foods that we can be eating to keep our bodies balanced and strong? Um, just, just a few off the top of your head. Um, oily fish, the most obvious of anti-inflammatory okay. Okay. foods because cool. of its high omega-3 content. Um, and the clear benefit that the omega-3 oils has on just dampening inflammation throughout the body. So any food that's rich in omega-3, be it flax seeds, flax seeds oil, chia, walnuts, uh, dark green leafy veg also contain some of the omega-3 oils as well, um, and oily fish. Um, other anti-inflammatory foods, turmeric, ginger, so using those delicious spices mm. in foods and dishes mm. um, also proven to be beneficial against uh, sort of systemic inflammation but really one of the one of the key ways to target inflammation in the body i think we're learning more and more about is about having a healthy microbiome and mm. a healthy microbiome is about a, di a diverse microbiome one that has lots of different kinds of bacteria good bacteria, um, and also good quantities of those good bacteria. Mm. And we achieve that um, by eating a wide, diverse range of foods. Um, so I would say eating lots of fruits and vegetables, but a diverse variety. So rather than always putting the same vegetables every week into the shopping trolley always trying to take two or three different things each time rotating things introducing things thinking about colors we now know that the colors contain powerful um, polyphenols plant chemicals that directly feed the diversity um, of gut bacteria that we have good gut mm. bacteria mm. and if our gut bacteria are happy it can actually have an immune dampening effect on the body as well amazing so yeah. having lots of different colors even um things like resveratrol in in grapes grape juice and even red wine um mm. but also cocoa powder as well they're also very rich in these sort of poly um sort of polyphenols that feed the bacteria mm. um so in terms of kind of combating inflammation with foods, I think whole foods can really do that. Um, we know that when we eat whole grains as well, they're providing fiber that's feeding the microbiome. When we're eating plant proteins like beans, um, pulses, nuts, that's also feeding our microbiome too. Mm -hmm. So it's about, I think, whole foods, cooking from scratch, um, and avoiding the processed foods that have additives that are now being exposed as possibly detrimental to our microbiome whether it's yeah. something as simple as added sugars or whether it's something more complicated like an emulsifier mm. which 
um, some of these artificial emulsifiers are being blamed for this pattern of increase in leaky gut that we're seeing. So mm. another good reason for sticking with whole foods um, and just avoiding those kind of processed foods that we buy with lots of long lists of ingredients on the back of packets. Yeah. Just thinking that whole food diet, I think that's one of the best ways. Um, you know, we're, we're exposed to so many sort of pollutants just in the air we breathe and the chemicals that, that we're cleaning our home with or washing our clothes with. So, so not consuming those things as well can be um, a really powerful way to bring balance back in the body, um, you know, to just help things function optimally. Absolutely. That's really um, good advice, Sam. Yeah, that's really fantastic. As you say, just really focusing on the plant-based whole food diet, yeah. just keeping With the foods as natural. Big variety. Yeah, big yeah. variety. Keeping it as natural as possible, uh, as you know, no processed food, um, and then steering clear of all those nasties. Um, and then we, you know, we're well on our way to really keeping our bodies healthy and balanced. So, thank you so much for being with us today um, and for sharing your incredible wisdom and we i think we've all learned so much i've learned so much and um so yes thank you for your time it's been great to have Pleasure. you on the podcast thank you for having me